Now, let me see your head, Jimbo. See if you got any creepy crawlers. <laughs> need to make a telephone call. Uh, gotta take it to a doctor, Jimbo. Can't make no calls till the doctor says. It's very important what you gotta do, Jimbo. Let's take it easy. Relax into things. And we'll all get along fine. You just relax. Okay, right off Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? And it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 191, and the movie this week is 1995's 12 Monkeys, and joining me to talk about it is SP, and how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, and the farther I get away from having to watch this mess, the better off that I'm getting. I feel like we're going to have a divided opinion on this movie. I can see Probably. this. Is, I can, I can not, somewhat see where this is going. <laughs> not necessarily the IP, but definitely the movie is not the finest work of those involved. All righty. Well, um, so you had never seen this before, but were you familiar with the movie or some something about it at all prior to watching? I watched the, yeah, I watched the 2015 sci-fi series, 12 Monkeys, so I had the basis for everything that was going on, and unfortunately, the movie just fell a lot short. Uh, but surprisingly to me, because I don't really love everything that's on the Sci-Fi Network, but this show, the Twelve Monkeys show on Sci-Fi, was way better than this movie, which is shocking to me. Okay, so that's interesting, and I definitely want to want to touch on that a little bit more. Um, before we get there, though. Are you a Terry Gilliam fan in terms of films? Are you familiar with his work uh, outside of this I movie? Looked up, I looked up some of his work, and I didn't remember too much that he did. Um, Mighty Python. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that, you know, I know serious stuff. that, and So I kind of glossed over everything. What did I miss? Uh, so he did, um, Time Bandits was, was his oh, back yes. in the eighties. Uh, Brazil was a movie that he did. The Fisher King, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, um, is one that he did. The Brothers Grimm with Matt Damon and Heath Ledger, um, is another one of his, which isn't his strongest movie, but, uh, it is definitely one. So he's a, he's an interesting director. Uh, as you mentioned, he got started in, uh, Monty Python was kind of his first, his rise to fame. He was the... Um, the token American in the group uh, who ended up moving to uh, England and, and living there um, anyway. But he uh, he was responsible for all of the interstitials with the cutout animation. That was all him. So anytime they'd go between segments and they had all that weird, just crazy animation with the big foot and all that, that was all Terry Gilliam stuff. He basically did mostly that and would show up for occasional sketches. Um, and that's how he got started, and then he moved into directing, and he co-directed uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail with Terry Jones before going off on his own and starting to do his own movies. He is a, uh, a unique person, I will say, uh, very opinionated, uh, but has a very distinct vision for film. So I wonder if that plays into comparing that with the series um, now, I have not seen the series, I will say that. It, it just sort of, as much as I like this movie, I did not have a, um, 
an opportunity to see that. And it's, it's one that's always been on my list of like, I need to watch the 12 monkey series and then something else catches my attention or I have something else to do for a show. And I forget, uh, I forget about it for like six months at a time, but I am a big fan of Terry Gilliam, uh, in his, it, I should say his, his movies. Um, he can be a little grating. He's kind of, he's one of those that is, uh, he's got very strong opinions and he makes sure that you know his opinion on stuff and it's not always great. But um, but his visual, his directing, I've always been a fan of. So it's very interesting to say see that you didn't glom on to that. Um, how would you compare, having seen both, how would you compare this with the series? What was it about the series that worked a lot more for you than this movie did? There were a lot of similarities in the storyline, but there were marked differences that made it way better, sometimes subtle. Dr. Rayleigh was a virologist in the TV show versus a psychiatrist in the movie. I think a lot of the insanity stuff, the play up of the mental health really did a disservice to the, not mental health, but did a disservice to the story. Yes, they had some issues with early test subjects coming Mm -hmm. back raving mad. So they referenced the issues that they were having in the movie from that point. But they also went into the Splinter Project, which was the time travel that allowed all this to happen. Okay. Whereas in the movie, you didn't get any of it. You just got this big tube that the guy went into and then <laughs> whoop, he's gone. You got a little bit more. So the movie, the, the TV show was set in 2043. At least that's where it started. Okay. And it started in 2013 even though it aired in 2015 it started in 2013 so it was 30 years difference that didn't change but the time frame that it was filmed in changed so you got to spend a lot of time in 2043 to see what had happened to everything in the future where Mm -hmm. you got nothing above ground in the film whatsoever sure and The whole thing about the virus was flipped on its side for Hmm. the TV show versus the movie, whereas it was kind of almost a a non-plot subplot in the film. It was the main plot. You were actually going after the virus and to prevent the destruction of the world and stuff like that. And Hmm. It was before the pandemic. The TV show finished before the pandemic, so there was sure. no pandemic influence on it whatsoever. Kind of like Contagion, the, the film Contagion. Right. But there was a lot of what you would think were similarities to the coronavirus pandemic in there as well. So you had a lot of that. The character Jose was flushed out. Kirk Acevedo played Jose, and Ooh. that's a main character. Nice. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. Yeah, and it wasn't... A bunch of crazy people it was actually sane people trying to figure out what was going on so that made a difference as well the filming style wasn't as i don't know i i didn't like this sideways camera or the diagonal camera i didn't care for that the deep drooling I didn't care for that. I'm, I'm not a break, big Brad Pitt fan to begin with. Mm. And then his character just fed into that to me. I'm like, okay, you're just way, way crazy. And I don't think it was Bruce Willis's strongest role. Matter of fact, even though he's a good actor, even though he did time travel with Looper, even though he has all these accomplishments with sci-fi, Fifth Element, 
it just didn't pull off for me. Okay. I lo- I you're making me want to watch the series more because I love Kirk Acevedo. So having him play the Jose character and getting more of that character, I'm all for that. Uh I've loved him since I saw him. I remember him in Oz, but I really fell in love with Acevedo in Fringe. Um he was in the first couple seasons of that. And uh so that's really cool. So it's it's funny because I have almost the exact opposite takes on a lot of this. Now, I saw the movie first, so that's going to color my uh, interpretations of it quite a bit differently in that you came from, you saw the series, and then you go back and you see this movie, and it sounds like they're they're quite different in tone, in, in the story. They're telling the same story, but in a very different way. So I can 100% see how this would be something that just doesn't feel right and feels very off-putting. Terry Gilliam's style is to be somewhat ambiguous. Um, This is not my favorite of his movies. My favorite is Brazil, which is got a same, uh, a very similar tone to it where um, you're not quite sure exactly what's real and what isn't. And he sort of plays around with that idea of the ambiguity and how, how, uh, reliable as our narrator and our main character because in this movie it's all from kind of James Cole's perspective Bruce Willis's character and so it's funny that you mentioned like you see much more of the world in the future um, which is something that they kind of purposely didn't do in this but when I'm watching the movie it's like I want to know more and I want to expand on that so it's cool that they did that in the series um it sounds like the series is doing exactly what I say in a lot of these really ambitious sci-fi movies, which is make it into a series and, and continue on with the world. I remember saying that when I first saw um, the animated movie Titan AE was the same thing. I was like, I would love to see a series set in this world because it's fascinating and we only see this little slice of it. And that's kind of how I've always felt about 12 Monkeys, where it's like we're seeing this tiny little part of the future, but only from this guy's perspective because we only ever see him in, what, like a jail cell? or uh, a hospital bed, or in front of that group of scientists. And it's all it's just all ambiguous. You don't know anything. No, nobody in the future has a name except for Jose. Um, the scientists are just called the scientists. And so I kind of I like the idea of expanding on that. But Gilliam has this thing where he like purposely wanted the movie to not have a, a clean wrap-up. Um, and you sort of could interpret it as like, well, maybe this guy really is just completely nuts and none of this is real, but everything is given to you like it's completely 100% real. So it's weird. Gil- that That's just a, a Terry Gilliam filmmaking thing. He does a lot of that stuff. Brazil had famously kind of a false ending that then brings you back and like, oh, the real ending is this. He actually fought hardcore with the studio back in the 80s who released his movie with a different cut. So when he went to work for Universal again for this movie, he demanded that he have Final Cut. And they said, sure, you can have Final Cut for this movie, but you got to make it for $30 million. You can't go over budget, and uh, we want Bruce Willis in it. So he agreed to that and uh, and got to make this movie. Um, it's fascinating that uh, that like the virus is the main focus because I feel like the virus in this is the MacGuffin, right? It's the thing that's moving the plot along if you can call what's in this movie like a plot. it's Because it's not your standard sort of A to B to C plot. It's like A to Q to who knows where, and then I'll oh, just give up on that, and we'll, we'll play over here for a little while. And like, it's it's weird, almost art housey in a way. And 
when you think about the fact, or when you when you learn that this was based on, and you may have seen it in the opening credits where it said it was inspired by the film Le Jeté, that is about as art house a movie as you can get. It was a French film. I want to say it came out in the 1960s. It's only like 20 minutes long, and it's all still shots. There's there's no movement at all in the movie, but it it's a story about a post-apocalyptic world where they're sending people back in time um, and kind of the fallout from that. So coming from that and then you incorporate somebody like Terry Gilliam who is just a uh, an out-there director, I can see where it's just an odd thing, especially coming from something that got to expand that story so much. You really, I really want to watch this series. I might have to start this. Is it? Do you know, uh, so it was a sci-fi series, right? Sci-fi channel? Yeah, it's on Hulu right now. It is. Okay, excellent. I have Hulu. So All four I, seasons. I think there are four seasons, yeah. So I turned it on as a palate cleanser to this whole <laughs> thing. to like Because I hadn't seen it since it aired. So I was sure. like, oh, yeah, yep, yep. I am not misremembering it. This is much better. No, it's not like the finest bit of television ever. Mm. But you take the show and... They take aspects of the show. For instance, the final scene, right? When Dr. What is his name? Not Dr. Peters, I Dr. think Peters, is his name, yeah. right? Yep. He, so he's on the plane and he sits down next to that insurance agent who said her name is Jones. Mm-hmm. One of the lead scientists in the TV series is Dr. Jones. Yeah. It's a woman. It's a strong character. And it was taken straight from there. Goins, the Brad Pitt character, yep. was gender flipped. And given a strong actor, a strong character there, and what they did with the entire thing is just leaps and bounds above what this is. Now, you might say, okay, so they had four seasons and the movie was only two hours and six minutes. You know, obviously you're going to do a better job. I think the unreliable narrator, it's a strong story plot device. Mm -hmm. I understand that. But it completely just mind warps you to the point of what is going on. They did none of the cause and effect for the time travel whatsoever. They explore that in the series to actually tell you you're going back and forth. And like you said, maybe the unreliable narrative in the film was he was crazy, that he wasn't going back and forth. But I like the story better the other way. Sure. Where it is a reliable narrator where you do go back and forth. One scene in the movie theater in the film that I really enjoyed was when Bruce was talking. I think it was Bruce. He was James Colt. He was talking about seeing the movie different times and that the movie didn't actually change, but that you as a person have changed and your perspective of the film has changed. And I'll give you a recent example for that. I am a huge Kelly Preston fan. Okay. Just love her to death. And one of my favorite movies was For the Love of the Game. It's a great date movie because there's a guy stuff in there. There's girl stuff in there. Sure. And I had given the movie a pass for quite some time because of that. You're like you have the supernatural power where he's clearing the mechanism. So he's able to pitch this perfect game or able to pitch without the crowd. Yeah. That's, around him whatever and he had this love story going on i was like okay this is really cool i watched it again for the first time in a couple years and i'm watching kevin costner be this giant dick to (laughs) kelly preston for the first time in my life and i'm like 
Okay, I could see why people didn't really love this because his character is based on a dick character. And I never seen that because I was always rooting for the hero. Mm -hmm. Like he's at the end of his career. He's a weary pitcher. They've got the baseball commentators saying everything. And it, it just feels like an emotional thing. And I was a, just a fanboy about that. But then I watched it. You know, I'm over 50 now and I'm watching it like Kevin. You're just a dick. You need to like lay off this poor woman who's just trying to be there for you. And you're just pushing her away and being a dick. So that's me watching it for the first time after seeing it dozens of times before. Sure. So I, I get what Bruce is saying. You know, you're watching life events pass you by like a movie and you're just seeing it from a different perspective. I thought that was a very powerful message that mm -hmm. I took. So I did take something positive from the, the film here. Was that scene? And and I love that you pointed that out because that was one in my notes when I was watching it this time around. Like I really love that moment because I feel that like in my soul. Uh, I talk a lot about movies uh, with a lot of different people, and that is one thing that I have noticed is there are certain there are, you going into a movie, whether it's your expectations of the movie or your preconceived notions or or whatever you bring into a movie watching experience completely changes watching that movie. The example that I like to give from my, me personally is uh, a movie called Event Horizon. It came out in 1997. Um, I saw it in the theater when it came out. Did not like it the first time at all because I had no. I was not prepared for what it was um, because. It, all the marketing was for a sci-fi kind of dark sci-fi adventure thing. And it turned into a, just a crazy haunted house horror movie. And I wasn't prepared for that. I watched it again a few years later. I had, cho I had not only was I more prepared for it, but I had changed over the years um, and, and sort of changed how I looked at movies. And suddenly I really liked what they were telling the story that they were telling, but I wasn't blindsided by it. And I had more years of kind of life experience to sort of, frame how I look at something. Um, another one, just recently I rewatched um, The House on Haunted Hill, the remake version. Not the not the old Vincent Price one, but uh, the one from 99. Realizing that's a better kind of horribly cheesy late 90s horror movie than it had any right to be. And when I first saw it, I was younger and I just didn't, it didn't connect. And it's not good by any stretch, but there was something... I appreciated about it more watching it again um, as I got older and sort of changed how I view movies versus sort of the younger version of me. So it's really cool that you noticed that in this movie and picked that line out too, because that was one I captured and I just love the delivery of it. And it's so, it, it really is a great way of a great kind of a philosophical thing of like, yeah, you, you change throughout your life, but the things around you don't necessarily change. Like it's still the same and for James Cole in this movie, he's he's literally witnessing because they keep showing that um, does the dream play into a lot of stuff where he's having the dream of himself as a kid in the airport or is that not not as much played? No, there's no I don't remember completely. So here's your unreliable narrator. For me. <laughs> okay. But I don't think there was a memory of him in the airport. I think there was some memories when he was younger. And then also they ran into some tra time travel rules, like you couldn't go past your own 
lifespan. So mm. in the film, he could go back to World War One, but he wasn't alive in World War One, so he couldn't go back that far. I think they got around that once or twice, and I can't okay. remember how they did, but the entire thing with uh, Rayleigh and James Cole, they were an item in mm -hmm. the series but i don't think it was like a, a start in the end and then also with the series you kind of remember these showrunners never knew how long they were going to actually get like are we going to end at season two are we going to end at season three are we going to end at season four how are we going to actually wrap this up and then each season how do we take it to the next level so they're going completely off the page by oh, the sure. end of the, uh, the series because they just didn't know anything so no, I don't remember this airport scene over and over. And even if they did, I think it would have been limited to the first season. And then before we get completely off of it, let me just say one other experience that I've had. I kind of backed into this movie because I did watch the series first mm -hmm. before I watched the movie. The only other thing that I can remember that can equate to maybe a lot of people out there is if you take a look at the Starship Troopers film. The people that read the book mm. hated the film by large part. I mean, there's probably some exceptions out there. Sure. But the people that saw the film and had no idea what was in the book enjoyed the film for what the film was. Yep. So maybe they went back to read the book and got more of what was going on in the book or not. But that's the general feeling that I got of Starship Troopers is the people that enjoyed it didn't have the background yet the people that had the background didn't enjoy it. So that's just an example. Yeah, and and I've seen that plenty of times too. Uh, I had a friend of mine who was a huge, and probably still is, Robert Ludlum fan, loved Robert Ludlum's books. So he, the, the Bourne series, um, the Bourne Identity, Supremacy, all of those. Um, and he and I went and saw the Bourne Supremacy in the theater, and he sat in that theater for two hours seething with anger over that movie because he had read the book. He loved them so much. And within like five minutes of the start of the movie, it diverges from the book almost completely. And he just, he couldn't handle it after that. And he almost, I'm, I'm surprised he sat through the whole thing. Um, whereas I hadn't read those books yet. So my only real complaint was, Hey, pull the camera back just a little bit from the action. I'm getting seasick because it was it was very early Paul Greengrass and everything was up close and handheld. And it's like, let's let's smooth that out a little bit. It's tough to tell what is happening anywhere. But yeah, I, I Starship Troopers is a great one because I didn't read the book. I saw the movie and it's fine. I had no problems with it at all. But then I read the book later uh, for a class I did in college and realized, oh, that's why everybody hated that movie that I talked to. And that happens a lot with novels, too. Ad adapting a story from page to screen, it's not the same storytelling medium, right? So, like, you have to do things differently. Now, sometimes you can completely change things. Uh, Blade Runner is a good example where Blade Runner has some of the same core concepts as the novel, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, but they're very different. Um and so if you come at something from this idea of like, I read this book and I really like this book and then they make a movie about it and it's not the same as the book, you're probably not going to like that. Um, so it, it, it does kind of come back to sort of what I was saying where it's like you bring all this stuff with you when you see a movie, 
or you read a book and it's always going to be unique to you. So it does make me wonder, had you seen this movie prior to the series, how different that experience would be? Not so much would you like it or not, but how, what, like, what level of uh, like or dislike would you have for the movie 12 Monkeys if you didn't have the better memory of what the series told for that story and how that hit you better uh, when you saw this for the first time? Because it sounds like, and, and it's what I say a lot, which is you take an ambitious story and you spread it out over more time and you can dive into things more. For instance, changing uh, the character of, of Dr. Rayleigh to a, vir- a virologist from a psychiatrist. That's interesting because it sounds like they don't play as much with the mental instabilities of time travel at all. Um, no. No, not really? Like, there, were, there were a couple of, of test subjects before James Cole that mm-hmm. just went crazy when they came back. So there was a little bit of we need to get the specific DNA or the specific compatibility with what is called the splinter project so that you could travel back and forth without going insane. Gotcha. So it's sort it's almost like um, the movie version of James Cole was that precursor in some ways, because that was one of the things I found interesting in the movie is Bruce Willis's performance. I liked because he gets to flip around from being like when he first travels and he shows up in, in whatever time it is, whether it's 1990 or 1996, he's disoriented. He doesn't quite know what's going on yet. He's not, not fully like all the cylinders aren't quite firing. Um, and when he goes back to the, whatever, I think it's, it never says it in the movie, but the trivia that uh, I've read over the years is like 2035 is the, the time frame. Um, he's same thing when he arrives, it's, he's a little like everything's dulled. He's not quite as sharp as he should be. Um, and if he has enough time to stay in one time period, it's sort of, it smooths out because if you, the, the scene where he's in front of all of the doctors, um, at the asylum, the first time he's very composed for a majority of that. Very different from the kind of drooling, raving, crazy guy that he was before. And so it's like if he has enough time after the time travel, it's sort of everything can level back out and he gets set. But it's that that act of going from one time period to another, however that's done, which also is a thing that the movie just hand waves away. Like they just time travel. They don't give us any. And it sounds like the, the series does dive into that. It does. It's a whole project that the scientists run into. It's called Project Splinter. Okay. I won't spoil anything, sure. but there is an entity that is mankind's last hope where they're trying to reverse this whole thing mm. and they do it through trying to create this project splinter i think everybody dies around it I, this is like in the first episode so i'm not really spoiling okay. anything and so a surviving group of military and scientists take it over and then they reconstruct not only how this thing works but then how to actually target you know how to use it like how are we going to prevent all this from happening because everybody's had this terrible loss. You know, they've Mm. lost 7 billion people because the earth's population has grown since the 
uh, 5 billion people in the movie to now 7 billion people. So it's 7 billion people. So yeah, they're trying to bring back loved ones. They're trying to make it so it never happened. They're trying to make their pain over the last 30 years go away because this all didn't have to happen. Right. Let's go back and fix it. And that is what they're doing. Also, let me go back to the mental instability of Bruce Willis. Sure. Bruce Willis, he has a lot of strong points with his acting. Playing a crazy person is not his strong point, or maybe it's not how he's viewed as a strong point. Take the fifth element, for example. There is crazy going all around him, and he keeps his composure. He keeps his wits around him. Mm -hmm. He devises a plan. He executes the plan as best as he can. And in this, him being drugged just takes that whole thing away. And you get to see a side of him that I'm glad he got to play, mm -hmm. but it's just not his strong suit. And honestly, if I was his family, I would not want him remembered for that role because it is not his finest moment. I can I can understand that. I I liked the vulnerability that he brought to it. So he was, um, he originally met Terry Gilliam when he auditioned for Terry Gilliam's movie in 1991 called the Fisher King. And he wanted to play the radio shock jock that eventually went to Jeff Bridges, um, in that movie. And Gilliam liked him. Uh, he actually liked a scene he had done in Die Hard. There's the scene in Die Hard where he's pulling the glass out of his feet and he's talking about his wife and apparently a good majority of that was kind of made up on the spot. Um, and Terry Gilliam was like, that was just a cool scene, and I really liked that. And when he learned that it was ad-libbed, uh, Gilliam kind of remembered that. So even though he didn't cast him in Fisher King, he was excited to work with him in this and kind of let him play some more of that so that that aspect of things, that more vulnerability. Because at this point, Bruce Willis was very much known as the action star. By this stage in his career he was a bankable star which is why universal pictures wanted him in this movie um so that they'd get that kind of opening weekend push from having a bruce willis movie and it is very different for him um because you're right i think it was the next year actually was was uh fifth element i think came out the year after this and so he's a different he's a totally different character in that he is uh corbin dallas is always like level he's got he's got things under control no matter what insanity is going on around him no matter how many uh times he has to listen to chris tucker scream <laughs> in that movie um he keeps it together and james cole i think it's because there's that idea again of that kind of fracturing of the mind as that travels through time um i don't know it's it, it's an interesting like thought uh to it and sort of he as he as the movie progresses, he goes from very earnestly believing in the future and the virus and all of these things to he gets to a point where I love his line when they're in the hotel room and he says, I want the future to be unknown. Like he's burdened with this knowledge of what's happening and can't do anything about it. And all he wants is for it to be unknown. So he's willing to kind of run down the rabbit hole of maybe I am crazy uh, to get away from sort of that, the the reality of where he's from. And I thought that was really, really something to explore. Um, I also noticed in the first 15 minutes of this movie, they wanted to show him naked a lot because we got the two different shots of him being showered uh, and then drooling. He drools a lot in this movie too. 
uh, which not not great to look at because it's like it's not just a little bit of drool. It's like hanging to the floor. I'm I don't know how they pulled that off other than just making him drink a whole bunch of water and then it was it wasn't just him brad pitt did it too and i just i disliked it on both of them i was like this is if you're if you're showing these two strong main character actors and you're showing them like that it's like i don't i don't come to the movie to watch this i i don't now this was you're showing it to me this was um brad pitt was actually nominated for an academy award or for best supporting actor for this role. And this so when he was cast and when they were filming this, um he was still not quite Brad Pitt yet. He was coming, he was up and coming. He had done a few movies, but he wasn't the star that he was. While they were filming this and before it released is when Legends of the Fall and 7 both came out and those were those really rocketed him. So he's suddenly a much bigger star by the time this hit. Um his performance in this is just manic and crazy and out there, and he's just like going for it, um, which I'm fine with. I but I also I I like Brad Pitt. I think that he's just a very charismatic actor, and so I love to see somebody just have fun with a role, and you can kind of tell he's having fun with that. Sort of he as he's aged, he's gotten to a point of of having more fun on screen. It looks like I just saw him recently in the movie bullet train. And in that he's playing kind of a, he's an aging, uh, hit man of some kind. So he's, he's a hit man, but now he's in his fifties and he's kind of rethinking his life. And he wants to kind of go along more of a, uh, a path of nonviolence, but he's still doing jobs. And so it's, it's just, there's a lot of uh, deadpan and sarcasm in it, and he's having a lot of fun with that role. And I like to see that. And this was one of those roles where he's just having fun. Like he basically gets to do whatever he wants and act out. And I have to think for an actor that can be kind of a, a freeing thing to just be able to go nuts on it too. There's also, uh, whether it's true or not, the story that Terry Gilliam took his cigarettes away from him while they were filming to make him more manic, <laughs> which... I don't know that I believe it, but at the same time, with the stories from Terry Gilliam that I've heard and seen in documentaries, I kind of want to believe it because he would do that. Um, I'm biased. I'm not a big Brad Pitt fan to begin with. However, I didn't like the drooling. Same with Bruce Willis. I think it was a disservice to both of those guys to do it. I know, you know, if they're leaning into the mental health thing and unreliable narratives i could see why they wanted to show it but it's just it i don't think it was necessary to show it on screen him acting like the crazy goings that was fine as an actor like i i didn't mm-hmm. like brad pitt but the crazy goings okay i could see that because again coming off of the series jennifer goings is crazy she turns out to be incredibly intelligent but she's crazy, and I could see the similarities there between the two roles. The fact that it didn't have anything to do with anything other than let the animals go is, is like, okay, so you, you had this crazy plot going on that had nothing to do with what was actually going on with Dr. Peters. It was the misdirect there, I think, was a too big of a jump for me but brad pitt good crazy 
He can he can definitely do that. I think also aesthetically, the contact that he wore in the one eye helped because that made him just look is even odder because his one eye is 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 just so off and it makes his face look weird. And you mentioned you didn't like the the angles and the Dutch tilts that they do in this, and that is something I don't like overuse of them. Uh, which some directors can do. And Terry Gilliam definitely does a lot of wide-angle lenses up very close, so everything is distorted. Um, and a lot of tilts. And I think the reason that for me in this movie it worked is because this movie is meant to have you never quite feel comfortable with what's going on on the screen and never quite fully grasp what's happening. And so all of that stuff plays into it. The tilting the camera, moving it around in weird ways, getting way up close on somebody with a wide-angle lens so their faces, their nose gets really distorted and all of that. It's it's all done with a purpose to to make you feel disoriented. And so for me, I like that personally. Um, okay, it's okay for a little bit of the movie for me, 5, 10, maybe 15 minutes, but for all two hours and six <laughs> minutes? No. I wanted to actually ground myself at some point in the entire story, and we get none of it. Yeah, it, it, it does feel like this movie, this movie itself is less about the story of what's happening than sort of following James Cole and what he's going through and seeing it all from his perspective instead of following the virus and what's happened in the future and why he's going back. They give you the reasons but they don't focus on those reasons. That's that almost feels secondary in the movie um, to sort of what Gilliam was trying to get across, which is like stuff's weird. And, you know, here's, here's a weird movie. Enjoy it. Um, or not. Uh, and, and it's kind of, that's, that's sort of what Terry Gilliam does. Um, he just kind of is this like really out there artist uh, or that's how he sees himself. And so, a lot of actors like to work with him. I know uh, Willis uh, and Madeline Stowe, who we haven't really talked about a whole lot of her performance as uh, Catherine Rayleigh. And her name's different in the series, right? It's Cassandra, I think. I think so. Um, but they took pay cuts because they wanted to work with Terry Gilliam. That was sort of a big thing for them at the time. Um, he's he's not as in demand of a, of a director anymore. Um, but I know... It was a couple years after this, he did Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with Benicio del Toro and Johnny Depp, uh, and uh, they they also really wanted to work with him. That's another weird one. If you don't like Twelve Monkeys, I I don't recommend Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas because it's a lot of that same sort of visual style, um, and it per it kind of progresses throughout the whole thing. Um, but that's also a movie about uh, drug addicts um, taking taking all sorts of drugs, so. Again, it sort of fits the narrative of what Gilliam, like the vision of what he has for the story, but it's not, it doesn't make sense in terms of like, we're telling you a story, here it is, and watch it unfold as much as it is, here's an experience, experience this with us. And I think that is the biggest difference I'm getting from the series, which expanding on this story because I I think from from a writing aspect the concepts in this script are really interesting in this idea of of uh, you know 
fatalism, determination. Uh, here's James Cole keeps going back in time trying to fix things, and we don't see any of the ripple effect of that. And usually time travel movies do that, right? If something changes in the past, you see that change in the future. The closest we get to that is Jose showing up at the end at the airport in the movie um, and telling him, hey, we just got your, you know, we got your message. I'm here to help in handing him the pistol. And then the woman on the plane. Um, because she's one of the scientists in the future. And so you can you can interpret that as they got the information enough to send her back, maybe, or it's the her from that that current year and she just happened to run into him. Could kind of go either way, and that's, again, that ambiguity. Um, I like to think that maybe they figured something out and they sent her back, but because we never get any kind of resolution and uh, to the story, it's left open-ended. I know when I was younger, I definitely assumed, oh, no, this is Dr. Peters meeting her on the plane as he's going out to spread the virus everywhere. And basically everything that happened in the movie didn't change anything. The virus still happens. Um, it was already out at that point. By the time he, Dr. Peters gets in the plane, the virus is already happening. So that's a conundrum in of itself because Dr. Jones has been uh, subjugated to it. She's mm-hmm. already been exposed to it. Yeah. And it's the, <laughs> it's the problem with anything time travel related is if you – if you think about it long enough, you're going to find all the, the plot holes and the issues um, with any kind of time travel movie. But I, I'm i going to come back to it. I really want to watch this series now and see this world expanded. Because the closest we got to that was when Cole goes to the surface at the beginning of the movie in the really crazy clear plastic suit and the body condom that he's wearing uh, and yeah. collecting samples. And you get the shots of like the lion on top of the library and the bear and all of that. Um, that costume was also, uh, those costumes were also nominated for Academy Awards. I remember that because I remember watching the Oscars that year. And they had, for some reason that year, when they announced who was up for best costumes, they would bring people out in the costumes from that from the movie. And so I just remember seeing a bunch of people, like two or three people wearing these same clear plastic, like bubble helmet things walking around on the stage in the Oscars thinking, and I hadn't seen the movie at this point. I'm like, what in the world is that movie about? Because that is weird looking. So, but I do, looking back at it, I love the costume because I just think it's, it's something that you remember. Yeah, I was taking a look at the costume going, you know, LEDs would make that a lot easier better these days and of course we have class i believe they're class four clear suits now clean suits now that maybe five that actually are designed for everything but this was the mid 90s so not necessarily we weren't progressed in our virology yeah as much as we are today and it's even before the pandemic so interestingly enough we've been referencing you know, the movies of the year and some of the other movies that were out. Mm-hmm. I did go into box office mojo and brought up 1995 movies. There's 282 movies that came out that year in the theater, according to box office mojo. 12 monkeys is number 13 of the box office for that year. Mm-hmm. Number one was toy story. Number two is Apollo 13, three Batman forever Four Pocahontas, Five, Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. 
six Goldeneye, seven Jumanji, eight Casper, nine is seven, ten Die Hard with a Vengeance. So a little bit of Bruce Willis there too. Crimson Tide is eleven. Waterworld is number twelve, and then twelve Monkeys, and then right underneath there, Dangerous Minds, Mr. Holland's Opus, While You Were Sleeping, Congo, uh, Father of the Bride two, and then Braveheart rounds out so, the top 19 so it did pretty good in the box office for that year it so two things from that list uh that i take away from it number one uh 95 was a pretty good year for a lot of movies though and a fairly diverse um look at movies but Waterworld was a lot more of a box office draw than people like you always hear people talk about how it was kind of a flop well it was a flop relative to how much it cost at the time but it made money. Um, but this movie definitely made money. It was uh, worldwide just shy of $170 million, which in 1995 is a lot different of a box office draw than, say, now, right? Um, but that's pretty good on a movie that cost under $30 million to make. Um, so it was a, this was a popular movie. It was up for uh, Academy Awards. It did not, I don't think it won uh, any. Uh, it was just nominated for several. Um, I will double check that. Uh, oh, uh, nominated for two. Okay, so uh, it was costumes and Brad Pitt. It didn't win either one, um, which is a little bit of a bummer. But uh, Brad Pitt wasn't quite the name that he is, um, and so he he grew into his acting. I do think. Um, whether you, and and I know you said you're not a, a big fan of his. I wasn't until I saw Seven, uh, but I wasn't a big fan of like the heartthrob stuff, the Legends of the Fall at the time. Watching it now, I actually appreciate that movie a lot more um, than I did, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, but this was, uh, yeah, this was a surprisingly uh, profitable movie. Um, and uh, it doesn't look like it would be. Like watching it now, because it feels like kind of an odd art house thing. But this got a wide release and it did fairly well. Um I'd remiss if I don't mention that Frank Gorshin is in this for a very small part um, as the the doctor. And I don't know what it is about him in this movie, but there's something like he's playing this, this doctor. He's odd, but there's also something kind of cool about him in the way that he moves. I can't explain it when he, there's this, the, and what made me think of it, uh, and I had I wanted to mention this was there's a shot of him when he's talking to Doctor Rayleigh in the office, and she's starting to believe Cole, she's starting to like question everything that's going on, and he grabs a cigarette, and when he goes to put it in his mouth, there's just something with the way he just kind of does that and sort of nonchalantly like sets the cigarette in his mouth and grabs the lighter. I was just like, man, Frank Gorshin just looks cool in this movie. I can't figure out what it is. It's the same guy who made this really weird noise with his mouth earlier in the movie too, which I might have uh, captured audio of when I was, when I was watching it because it was just, <laughs> I'm like, what is, what is he doing exactly? Um, that weird thinking thing that he was doing. Um, here's a question for you in the series. Does he run into other time travelers? Yes, okay. but if I'm remembering correctly, there's only one time traveler device. Hmm. So, and and there's an unreliable narrator for you as well, because I, I kind of remember there was a backup somewhere, and I don't know if they got it running or not, hmm, okay. or maybe maybe the Prime one got 
taken over or something like that. But yes, there's there's definitely other agents out there while they're time traveling. That's a, it's a big good versus evil sort oh, of okay. motif that they've got going because the evil people want to keep things the way they are <laughs> and the good people want to save everybody, save the planet, so to speak. So, and honestly, it's like the blip in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You go five years without people, and then they come back, and it's like, we've lived for five years without you. Mm -hmm. What are we supposed to do now? People have moved on. We thought you were gone. We thought you were dead. Mm -hmm. We've grieved, for the most part. I know some people in in the movies and the TV shows that Disney Plus, they some people have issues with the people that have left and mm-hmm. maybe some people take their own lives or maybe some people get sick and die of cancer while they're waiting for everybody else to come back, even though they don't, they don't know that people are coming back. But right. so it's very similar to that in okay. terms of where your modern movie goer might be thinking, right. In terms of there's 30 years of stuff that's happened. Yeah. There's 30 years of cannibalism. There's 30 years of people beating the crap out of other people just to survive. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're going to go back on all that. You're there. There's good stuff that happened, too. And you're going to yep. go back on that, too. It's tough when you think about time travel to go back to fix something where so much time has progressed. Yeah. And I, the reason I ask is, uh, like, number one, all of that kind of stuff is really fascinating. And that's the kind of thing that a, a series can can look at more because you just have more time, you have more time to to ask those questions. Um, but also in this movie, did you catch that the, uh, the street preacher that recognizes him um, when they're walking down the street and the guy says, Hey, you're one of us. The guy that was just like kind of yelling yeah. at everybody. That guy was also in Catherine Rayleigh's um, presentation earlier in the movie. When she was talking about back in whatever ancient time it was, that was the same face. And I was like, Oh, I don't because I, I don't know what had I had I ever really made that connection before um, where I realized, oh, that's the same person. And here's another one of your time travelers because they do have like that weird disembodied voice that Cole hears um, that no one else seems to hear, which um, is what is going on with Bob. You mentioned Titan AE before, and I've always had this fondness for the name Bob because planet Bob, but this yeah. Bob in this movie, it's like, what is going on with Bob? Well, and what's so confusing about it is Cole hears his voice and then later on he runs into a bum on the street that has the same voice and knows him and is telling him about their tracking you in your teeth and all this kind of stuff. And then he hears the the disembodied voice again later, but then she runs into the same homeless man who now has no clue about any of that. And so it very it's very confusing because if it's uh if it's part of his own psychosis, how did she know about it? Type of thing. But then if it's not part of his psychosis, why did the guy not know who he was years later or, or a few months later or whatever it's supposed to be? It's it is very confusing. I will give you that. Um in that it's it's hard to kind of keep track of. There's the flashes of the one guard who will just show up in present day for like two seconds coming up the escalator in the wrong direction or uh, when he's trying to get on the elevator uh, when he's making his escape and he looks back at the guy sitting at the desk reading the newspaper and it's the, it's the guard from the future 
telling him that the elevator's out, but then when he looks back again, it's a different person. So there is a lot of disorientation and a lot of confusing things in there. Um, I have always kind of made the joke that Terry Gilliam movies, I never understand the first time I see them. Like I, I almost have to watch one of his movies twice before it starts to sink in and make any sense. Um, and this is, this is one that really plays with that because of, of all those things. So it was just one of those that, uh, that I thought was interesting to have uh, the character, the voice talking to him. It seems to know a whole lot of stuff, but yet who is he and why is he part? Is he dealing with the scientists? How does he know any of this? Why is he just a voice? Uh, it's, it's very strange. There's a lot of really strange in this. Uh, Dr. Peters in this movie, first, he has almost no screen time. Like he's barely in it. I'm sure I have a feeling he's more important in the series. Uh, even think he's in the series no. i don't think his character was was brought forward i'll have to take a look but yeah he had that one scene where she was at the book signing and it was the kind of the weirdest freaking book signing right it really where, was where you've you've got all these people just flocking to her and, and trying to say oh i you should come to my research or this is awesome and everything and Okay, you get fans, but you have them line. If you have a book signing, you have them line up the table. Yeah. You don't flock the table, right? Yeah, there's there's some kind of order to things, right? You have a line, and someone comes up, gets their book signed, and they move on. And this was just like everybody flooded the table, and we're just throwing books at her. Sign my book, and it's like okay. Meanwhile, here's Doctor Peters trying to talk to her at the same time, and he's so creepy. God, he's creepy. And every single thing that he does is creepy. When they're talking in the hospital, for lack of a better term, institution, wherever they're working out of, he's creepy there. He's mm -hmm. creepy at the book signing. He's uber creepy at the airport. Of course, now he's at peace with himself because he's right. now going to destroy the entire human race. And so, yeah, he's creepy. It's that it's that uh that like calm almost whispery voice that david morse uses um and mm -hmm. like i like david morse as an actor um he's i think he's really good in a lot of different stuff this is one of those roles that feels so weird to me because of that because he's like he's he's almost giddy about what he's doing all the time but he's never showing that giddiness it's just like his voice is on the verge of doing that uh, that kind of like excitedness all of the time. So it's just this breathy. Yeah. And it just, it makes my skin crawl every time I watch this movie and he starts talking because I'm just like, ah, oh, come on, dude, stop, dial it back a little bit. You're, you're too good at the creepy. I think the I long, I disagree. I think the long red hair helped too. Cause it just, Oh yeah. With a ponytail. Yeah. That long ponytail down his back. And it just, it doesn't look right on him. You know, you see this guy and he's big, tall, guy and like I've always seen him with short hair but he's got this long and just just ginger red hair and just it, it's kind of like what they did with Brad Pitt in the movie where Brad Pitt is a good looking guy and in this movie he's made to he's made to be very odd looking and sort of the same thing with David Morse like Dr. Peters is just odd nothing ever seems right he gets too close to people when he's talking like when he's talking to uh um uh Dr. Goyens in the laboratory. It's like he has to get too close to him to talk to him because he's, he's always got that real breathy voice thing going. I was just, yeah, it was one of those. Um, uh, there was also, I, I, I love when I see like 
again, Frank Gorshin or some of these actors that either went on to have bigger careers or had careers before. And you see him in these small parts like Chris Maloney as the police detective who's got two scenes in the whole movie. And of course he went on to be uh, detective stabler in uh, law and order SVU. I think he was on that show for what? 10 years or something. Um, oh, 20 years or whatever. I don't know how long that one uh, ran, but yeah, I instantly recognized him from that show. He's got a lot more hair in the in this movie than I'm used to seeing him with. <laughs> um, but, uh, and also talk about getting typecast. Like he was a cop even back then. He just always played cops of some kind, it seems. Um, some, but yeah. Some people can't break out of whatever they're typecast. And if you're a working actor, at some point you got to make a decision of, I need money. Yeah. So... Um, and then I don't know who she is at all, but the cabbie at the end. Yeah. What was her name? She I was meant to look that up. She might be one of my favorite taxi drivers in a movie. There's something about her. Like she's that kind of straight from central casting New York cabbie, even though it's in Philadelphia. Um, there was just something about her, like her performance and her demeanor as the cab driver. And I loved it. Maybe it's because she was really good at the, um, the kind of taxi driver banter that you have to do when you're, when you're driving. Uh, and I've done that in the past, but she was great. Um, her name is Annie golden. And okay. she's not really noted for anything. She was in orange is the new black, but I didn't never watch that. So I don't know hmm. if, she was in there. She was in there for forty six episodes. So, oh, so she was apparently she was around for a while. <laughs> I don't know. Something just so great about that particular character in that moment. I think maybe because that's one of the happier moments in the movie too. Like this is a dour movie. This is a very like downer of a film for most of it. So to have that moment, uh, maybe I remember that just more fondly because at that point, Doctor Rayleigh's feeling better. Uh, she's kind of come back around to being like, oh no, okay, they're, they're just letting animals out. Like that's the reveal that the twelve, the army of the twelve monkeys is just a a dumb college activist group. But I loved, I loved the cab driver. Um, right. So there's a couple of things at the end. We mentioned the time travel stuff before. So yeah, this is the good feeling stuff. But once mm -hmm. they get to the airport and everything happens, there's two things. You pointed out the Doctor Jones thing where she's on the plane with Dr. Peters. Yep. She's been exposed to the virus. So there's that going on. Then also, Dr. Rayleigh is arrested at the end. Up till this point, I could be mistaken, but they didn't really, the cops didn't have cause to arrest her. There might have been some uncertainty for the whole brothel for the lack of a better term, scene where they beat up the pimp. Oh, there. yeah, the, the no-tell motel. <laughs> yeah. But aside from that, she is considered to be the kidnappee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why is she being arrested? I, it's, it's really difficult to say with the end of the movie kind of what's going on. I, it almost feels like they were arresting her based on the sort of disturbance that they were causing in the airport. And then, but you're right. She's she's been a uh, a victim and a and a kidnappee throughout most of the movie. So why why they arrest her? I I honestly don't know. Um, I I often forget about that. To be honest, like I just forget that. Oh, that's right. She's getting taken away at the end of the movie. 
Um, maybe it's because the the FBI agents are kind of following them at one point and see them together, and so maybe they're making an assumption that that she's now kind of flipped and is in on whatever plot they think that James Cole has going on. It's I'm not sure because that is odd. Um, here's a question for you. What did you think of the music in the movie? It wasn't strong. It, it can, it contributed to the obscurity of the grounding to me. I, I, it wasn't remarkable to me, but at the same time, it, it didn't help give me certainty. Okay. It was, Maybe uh, that's what I'm missing throughout this whole thing. There is, it definitely sounds as though expanding the story in the series and having, taking that mental illness part of things out of it makes for a much more cohesive and kind of story that's easier to follow. And because things make more sense, you don't have a main character who, for all intents and purposes, we're meant to believe everything that's happening to James Cole. But throughout the movie, he starts to vacillate and starts to wonder if he's really... I mean, there's the moment where he's in the bed and he says, you know, I'm insane and you're my insanity, talking to the doctors, which was another line that I really liked from the movie. This was written by David Peoples, by the way, who wrote Blade Runner Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. a few other pretty good movies. And And his wife, too, right? Yep. Yeah, it was was him and his wife that wrote it. Um, And there's some... I mean, there's some good lines in there. Um, That being one of them, I thought... um, but it's just such a weird, trippy movie. And the, the fact that you have, you know, your main character spends the first half hour of the movie drugged up through most of it, um, just just chock full of sedatives. So he's, as you said, drooling the whole time. And it is off-putting. And then from there, he starts to, he starts to unravel. You've got Dr. Rayleigh, who meets him, has some sort of an affinity for him, feels bad for him in a way. And then six years go by and the guy just shows back up and then she's kind of, she's afraid for him. He kidnaps her, but then she starts to come around to kind of what he's saying based on, you know, things like him talking about the kid in the well um, and it being uh, a fake thing and and kind of all of that. And she starts to listen to him. So now they're uh, reversed. He's, he's trying to convince himself that he's insane and she is starting to believe all the stories that he's been telling her that, that up until that point she believed were con- constructs of his own mind. And so it, it does like it moves back and forth and it can be very odd and confusing to try and follow like, well, wait, who thinks what at this point? And then to have everything, you know, continue on until the end and things happen, like her getting arrested and you don't know why, like, why are the police doing whatever they're doing at all? Why did they just shoot him? Uh, on site without because it's almost like she knew that that would happen if the cops showed up because she says at some point uh, they'll shoot you or they'll they'll look at me as an accessory or something like that yeah they'll have I can't remember what was said but it was before they went through security and before she got the tickets one difference between the series and the film is the film was in the mid nineties In the mid nineties. I won't say there weren't a lot of strong female characters, but there's nowhere near oh. as many strong female characters as there are today. 
And the series really explores strong female characters. For one thing, the Brad Pitt character is a strong female character. The actress that plays the Goins character, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but she is just fantastic. And then you've got several of the other characters in there as well. There's like a black hat character that is just amazing. Dr. Jones is fully flushed out and she is amazing. And there's just this breadth of characters, both in present day and in the future in the 2040s that are amazing. I'm not going to say that the Dr. Rayleigh in the film was not a strong character. I had some difficulties probably because of the unreliable narrative that was going on where she was a little bit hysterical at some points Mm -hmm. where I was like, then it's not necessarily what I'm used to. But then again, I did live through the 90s. So I understand (laughs) why movies went that way in the 90s. And Dr. Rayleigh was portrayed like that. So that is a difference between the two is you get many more strong female characters and many more balanced female characters in the future. And, And that makes for a better series in of itself. And is uh, Emily Hampshire plays Jennifer Goins in the the series. And I like yeah, she's amazing. I like switching that up and and having that Goins character being uh a woman in the series. Um I think that's a uh just based on my knowledge of the movie, I think that's an interesting um way to kind of update the story uh, a little bit. So and you're right. The 90s definitely was a very different time writing uh, characters at all. And certainly female characters were not written nearly as strong or didn't typically... Like, one of the things with Dr. Rayleigh in this is it doesn't feel like she has a lot of her own kind of agency. Uh, she's she's being swept along in whatever's going on, but she doesn't really have a say in what's happening. Whether it's the, the other doctors, um, not really, like, they sort of believe in her but kind of not they're a little bit dismissive like there's that whole scene where frank gorshin's doctor is like you know you're being very defensive and she's trying to explain that she's not but he's just not listening to her um so there's a lot of that 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 goes on too and uh yeah i can i can 100 percent see that so it's great that they fleshed out more characters um and have them uh, i think be more it makes more for more interesting stories too Instead of just being the same types of characters all the time, so I did like. There's that. more. I just didn't want to spoil anything, oh. so I was just going off of kind of what we knew sure. already. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Because um, yeah, it, it you you've you've convinced me to watch it finally. Like I'm going to, um, and I'm really curious to see how it how the series from me works based on my because I really really enjoy this movie, um, so I'm. I'm just interested in that part of it. Uh, I did mention the music, and one of the things I wanted to mention, and I did not know this until today, is the guy that um, composed the music for this, Paul Buckmaster. He wasn't really a film score uh, type person. He's not your John Williams, Howard Shore, where he's got a long history of film scores. He's more just kind of the record industry. Um, But he did do the music or at least the opening theme for uh, a nineties era cartoon called Peter Pan and the pirates. And it's one of the most epic opening cartoon themes you'll ever hear. Like it's so much better than the show has any right to have for opening music. 
Uh, and I had no idea that he had done that. And I, I remember the song uh, from the opening of Peter Pan and the Pirates. And then uh, I read that earlier tonight. I'm like, Paul Buckmaster did both of those. That's crazy. Because the music in this is, it's based on, I guess, Argentinian tango is where that kind of accordion opening theme thing comes from that plays throughout the movie. And it is something that I always remember. I don't necessarily remember the melody. I just remember kind of the the sound style um, of that. And it it feels very Terry Gilliam. That's another thing he does is he picks these kind of musical motifs and plays them through. Um, there's uh what's the song that the doctors, the scientists are singing when he comes back to the, the future. It's like Blue Valentine or something. Oh yeah, I forgot. I that went in and out of my ears when it was on screen. It's whatever one that they also played in the car. He did a Terry Gilliam did a similar thing in the movie Brazil is a song called Brazil that plays throughout the whole thing. Uh they come back to it all the time. So he he likes to do stuff with that too and it's always very odd music. It's not like what you would traditionally think of in a movie or kind of pop music. Um it's this sort of just I don't want to say avant-garde, but like out there, a little different, a little left to center. So you said that Buckman, right? Is that his name? Buckman? Uh, Buckmaster. The Buckmaster. You said he did one of the most iconic cartoon themes. Is it as iconic as the 92 X-Men, the animated series theme, or are we talking just completely different genre? A different style, um, but it's like that, where that opening theme is just, so good and the 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 90s x-men cartoon was good and i very much enjoyed it but that opening theme is like way better than you know it goes so much harder than it needs to for the opening to a cartoon it's like that that opening now instead of being um kind of synthesized and rock based it's very sort of traditional orchestral um for peter pan and the pirates but it's it's that level of like wow this is way more than they needed to do for this show. Yeah, same era, 90 to 91, 65 episodes, and X-Men the Animated Series ran for five years starting in 92. Okay. Which, which is coming back. Um, yes, Disney's... I know. I, so I do a podcast on the Marvel Cinematic Universe oh, right. called Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D., and we are re-watching, and for me, it's the first time. The early 90s, I didn't get to watch too many movies and TVs just because of where I was in life. I won't go into it, but I'd never seen it. So we're rewatching. I'm watching for the first time the 92 X-Men, the animated series. We actually interviewed Eric and Julia Lawald. And Eric Lawald was basically the showrunner. They okay. didn't really have showrunners back then, but he was basically the showrunner for it. And his wife was one of the writers on the show. So we interviewed them a couple of weeks back. And we've gone into the history and stuff like that. Now I bring up legends of shield, not necessarily for the music, but it's cool to talk about the music between the two composers. What I'm really bringing it up for though, is we podcasted about Legion and talk about a mental health unreliable narrator series. Mm -hmm. Legion was really difficult to watch and podcast on. It was an FX series before Marvel consolidated everything into yep. Disney plus and it was more adult than you typically would see on TV. And if I had to choose between this 12 Monkeys series and or film mm -hmm. and the Legion series of how they dealt with 
the mental illness, mental instability, unreliable narrator, I'll say they did it right over in Legion versus what they did here. And I did have difficulty going through Legion as well. Mm -hmm. It's not my favorite Marvel series, but because we wanted to go through it, we did. And the character of Legion is a huge mentally unstable person in the Mm -hmm. Marvel Cinematic Universe. So it does deal with those issues. And that was a series, so it's pre-Disney Marvel, but it's probably what, like 20, like late 20 teens, right? 2017 or something, I think. I don't remember the exact year, but 2017 would be a good guess for me right and off that's, the top of my head. You said that was a FedEx series. I, or FedEx. Wow. <laughs> I was going to say, been, I didn't know FedEx owned FedEx. FedEx, FedEx is now uh, <laughs> producing shows. I, it's work related. It's too much, too many shipping things. Um, FX series. So I wonder too, like we have, so portraying mental instability on screen and in, you know, in fiction has gotten much better over the years as we've understood more and kind of understood how to do it. And it's not a, uh, a punchline anymore. Um, and so I have a feeling that 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 has to play a lot into it, right? Like just the sensibilities and and the understanding of kind of how some of that can work or not work um, over time would make that. That it's interesting though that you bring that up, and that I, I would agree. I think that they do portray it better there, um, I, because I think here it does feel as though may it it's. I think because in 12 monkeys it's taken to an extreme for a, like a, an absurd uh, level um, with just how, you know, all the scenes, those early scenes in the asylum, which were filmed at Eastern state penitentiary. Um, they, uh, which is a, a very famous um, prison in Pennsylvania that now is uh, like haunted attraction. Um that that's where they filmed it. It's, it's been abandoned for for a long time, but they. So uh, it's not like welcome to the rock. Yeah, no, not quite. Um, you just had to get that in there. It's good with the with the gray beard. It works perfectly too. Thank you. Um, but it's uh, it, like it's almost to a cartoonish level that absurdity of how out there everyone is, and like Jeffrey, for instance, yelling at somebody for sitting in his chair and like freaking out, and it's that mania, that manic energy that he brings. Um, there's something again that just it's like cranked up to eleven, and and made to be more outlandish, um, which for this movie for me worked, uh, but I can understand it not, uh, in in a lot of other ways too. So, I mean, look, I'm honestly I'm glad that you got to see this movie, um, even if you probably didn't love the time, the the two hours you spent watching it. But at the same time, for me, it's, it's interesting because I get to hear about it from a different perspective, coming at it from somebody who hasn't seen it before and has a background with the story that's being told, but from a different, um, a different point of view in terms of just having seen that series first. And so I like hearing the kind of the, the things that are different and didn't work for you that for me are like, parts of why I love this particular movie. So it's very interesting in that way. And so I'm glad that you, uh, you know, you put up with the movie enough to come and then talk with me about it. Cause, uh, you know, it's fun. 
heard that it was free. I watched it on Tubi. This is actually the first movie I ever watched on Tubi, but I wasn't going to pay for it because I've heard things about it from people that watch the series. I'm like, eh, I don't know if I want to own it or not. So sure, we'll rent fair. it. So I watched it on Tubi. Commercials weren't too bad, by the way, on Tubi on this. There were some, but it wasn't bad. I had the opportunity to possibly watch another movie on Tubi that I declined called Slipstream, the 1989 mm. Slipstream movie with Mark Hamill. And I actually purchased that, which actually worked a little bit better in that case because there was visuals that you could see better on the remastered version versus the non remastered version on Tubi. So anyway, for those that might want to go watch this, it's free on Tubi. You can go ahead and watch. You can get away with, I can't remember how many there were, like three or four, not any more than five commercial breaks in and, there. Yeah. So, Tubi is a surprisingly good service um, in that they've got a really extensive library of stuff and their commercial breaks. Yeah, there's commercials. And I know some people that would just immediately refuse to watch anything because of that, but they're not super intrusive and they're pretty, they're short. They're like 90 seconds usually uh, for, for a break. And I don't think that it was remastered in any way, like on TV, right? Mm -hmm. We've shortened it for runtime or we've clipped stuff out because we couldn't show it due to ratings or whatever. I don't yeah. think they're doing that on Tubi. No, they're definitely showing the full like theatrical release of a movie. Um, they're just uh, just tossing commercials in there every so often so they can keep the service up and running. When they have the TV series that run on Tubi, um, they put the commercials right, usually right around the commercial breaks. Uh, it's not perfect because it's all algorithm-driven, but it's a surprisingly good seri uh, uh, service. Um, I actually watch quite a bit on there uh, for this show and for, uh, for other shows that I do because sometimes it's the only place you can find something. And I'm like you. I don't necessarily want to buy the movie that I'm going to watch because I may never do that again. But if it's something where, you know, I'm a little bit on the fence, Hey, it's a great, uh, it's a great option to have. Um, and this way you, uh, I, I, this way I don't get hounded to give you a refund for your two hours. <laughs> I don't owe you five <laughs> two hours, bucks for six this minutes. Movie. Oh, yeah, that's right. Two hours, go. six minutes. Um, but I also think that sometimes it's kind of, it's good to sort of step outside and watch something that maybe, uh, doesn't completely connect with you, and then you might go back now and watch the series again, or 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 the next movie that you watch, you might to pull a line from this, see in a different way because of. I'd sort always of that planned. Experience. I'd always planned on going back and actually watching this, so it's is no big deal that I watched it. I'm glad that I saw the series first because the series fits with me better mm -hmm. and sounds like. You might have the opposite opinion because of what drew you to 12 Monkeys in the film is different than what's portrayed in the series. So I'd be interested to get some feedback on, you know, whenever you finish watching the four seasons on whether you liked it or not. So who knows? In a couple of months, we might be having another conversation. Sure. I will absolutely give feedback on that because I love storytelling. And I, that's why I love movies and television so much because it's just such a, a, for me, a great medium to tell good stories in. And I like different ways of telling stories. So I'm really curious to see, okay, now that I know what I know about this movie, how did these people then take that and adapt it and make it into something different? And, and do that. That's why I loved 
Um, you know, I mean, one of my favorite adaptations of all time, because I love the books, was Lord of the Rings. And seeing how they changed it from, from page to screen was cool because it's the same story, but they definitely change things. Things that just don't work in a movie that work in a book. Um, I had a conversation with uh, somebody recently, earlier this year, about um, actually a movie that came out in 95, Congo, um, and how adapting Michael Crichton is so very hit and miss. It can go really well, like Jurassic Park, even though that, again, changed a lot. Or it can go not so great, like Congo, which has some cool ideas, but the execution of it wasn't great. And that's such a weird... His books are odd to to do anyway, but like, I just love changes in stories and adaptations. And so I'm really curious to see how different this is from this movie because, and, and I also think that it's smart that they did that. I think that it's, it's very smart of them to, uh, Oh, we're going to make 12 monkeys. Cause I heard about the series and I'm like, how would you make that movie into a series? It didn't make any sense to me because of how weird this movie is. Like I couldn't see this Terry Gilliam, thing with Bruce Willis drooling uh, for half of it being made into a series but to hear that they just they kind of took the the core concepts of it and then went in a very different direction with it has my interest because I do think those core concepts are very cool and so I want to see let's get it away from the lens of this particular person and let's dive into that story so I'm you, you've convinced me enough that I'm, I'm definitely going to watch it and I will give you feedback I will let you know what I think of it Cool. Another series movie pairing that was a little bit more connected, but I thought was different was Stargate and Stargate SG one Atlantis and universe, right? Very different, same universe, very different. And then once Amazon bought out MGM, they're thinking about rebooting it. Actually, they were thinking about rebooting it forever, but the original creators of the movie were like, yeah, we we're just going to shove the TV series aside and we're going to go ahead with a Stargate two movie and pretend those series never existed of course the fan base was like no you don't because yeah. there's more fan base from the series than not so mgm could never really get that off the ground now that amazon owns mgm i have no idea what they're going to do if they're going to do a complete reboot if they're going to do a revival if they're going to do a continuation i don't know what they're going to do but Amazon is not stupid. They realize that there is a fandom and they're going to at least put something on the screen that is Stargate related. We'll see what that happens in the future. But as far as the movie and the series, there were people that liked the campiness of Stargate SG-1 and didn't really like the movie. But then this IP got to the point where there was another series called Stargate Universe, which was darker and grittier. So Mm -hmm. the people that liked the Stargate IP because of Stargate SG-1 and Stargate Atlantis, which, by the way, Jason Momoa is in that, if you're a Jason Momoa fan. And Universe, though, same character, same universe, but much, much darker. So that was a series that was, or an IP that has been all over the place, and I'm interested in where that goes in the future. I don't see 12 Monkeys being rebooted, revived, or continued anytime soon simply because of the whole pandemic yeah i I don't think anybody wants to wade into that subject matter anytime soon well it's no longer uh an out there idea and science fiction it's something that people have been living through and so it's a lot harder to to kind of get yourself into the mindset to want to watch something like that um because it does definitely feel like it's too real um and i'm 
I love that you brought up Stargate because that's a great uh, that's a great one. I love like usually you get a series and then they'll make a movie out of it, whether that's good or not. It's hard to say, but I like the reverse where you take a movie and you expand it into a series. And, and Stargate's perfect for that because I remember seeing the movie and I like the movie. The movie's great. Nothing wrong with it. It's one of the better Roland Emmerich films that I've seen because it's not just about the apocalypse. Um, it's not his end of the world disaster porn movies like, uh, was it uh, end of um, uh, the day after tomorrow and uh, 2012 and uh, this is the latest one moon moonfall. Is it? I don't remember. Whatever one we're not the, seen moonfall yet. With that moon's is another one that's on my list. Yeah. Um, but like, I love Stargate. And then when the series came out, you're right. They went in a different direction with it and it worked and it was great. And I remember Stargate Atlantis premiering um, and uh, watching that and seeing Jason Momoa, uh, young Jason Momoa at that. Um, I didn't watch Universe. That's the only one I didn't because it just happened to hit at a time when I didn't have enough time to watch it. And from what I hear, that one started off a little slow, but got better uh, kind of as it went. I don't. I'm I'm curious they, to see that one at some point. Yeah, they totally shifted it towards the end because it got a lot of bad reviews, bad critics mm. uh, on the whole thing. I mean, they were going into the darker, grittier thing side of things. You got to remember when Battlestar Galactica was out, which was darker and grittier. Yeah, Stargate was already out. Stargate started on Showtime mm-hmm. and then migrated to Sci-Fi Channel skiffy sci-fi whatever you want to call it <laughs> i think there were at like season seven out of ten with stargate sg1 when battlestar galactica actually made it into series there was the whole mini series in 2003 2004 and then yeah. they said okay we're gonna go ahead with a series and i think there were about season seven or eight out of the ten by the time that bsg was going so they had already had the campy going for quite some time and they continued right. it with Atlantis, but I think they wanted to recreate and rekindle the fandom by saying, Oh, we can go dark and gritty too. So they did that with universe. And then the Stargate fandom said, this is not what we signed up for. Yeah. So they, they changed it back. But by that time it was kind of a enterprise issue with the star Wars or star. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> star Trek. I didn't mean that star Trek fandom when you finally got to the enterprise series with scott bacula where everybody was like okay this is no this is just too much let's just end this thing and they did after four seasons i believe everything else did seven seasons and enterprise got shoved down to four seasons i think maybe five but four seasons or something like that and that's where universe fell where it was a tired fandom of okay you've taken this in a direction that we don't want it to go in and they started losing audience. It's hard. And like how how long do you run a story, either a series or spin-offs of a series before you just sort of you run into that problem, right? I mean Ask two people that question <laughs> and you get two different answers. Kathleen true. Kennedy and Kevin Feige. <laughs> yeah. You're not wrong there. I think part of it is how you adapt and evolve your stories over time. Because you can look at, like, I used to watch, uh, for instance, uh, an example is NCIS. I enjoyed that show for what it was. It was a procedural. I knew what I was getting, but I enjoyed that. But at a certain point, 
usually around like the 15th season, I'm like, okay, I just, I'm, I can't keep watching the same thing. You've got to do something new. Plus you've got three or four spinoffs of it. CSI did the same. Um, and like Star Trek, Star Trek never had a lot of concurrently running shows. They would always sort of overlap by a year or two because it was what, uh, TNG was like 87 to 95, I want to say. For seven years, yeah. And then you had a couple of years of overlap with DS9, which had a couple of years of overlap with Voyager. Um, but they weren't connected just because of where they were. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that's another part of it too. And then when you do a tonal shift, it can be difficult because – Half your fandom is like, cool, this is new. This is something exciting. Um, maybe less than half. And the others are like, this is different, and I fear change, and I don't want this. And it's balancing that. Um, Battlestar Galactica with Starbuck. There's your example right there. Yeah. Yep. Plus, that that uh, early 2000s BSG series really changed a lot of things and made other series try to then re... like. Copy it, I think would be a way to put it, but like get the same idea. So you saw all of a sudden a shift from because pre Battlestar Galactica, you had SG1, Farscape was another show that was real big uh, in the early 2000s, late 90s, and that was very Andromeda. Andromeda. Avalon 5. Yeah. Which I'm curious to see that, uh, that new series, right? Is it a new series or are they doing a movie? I forget. Oh. <sighs> I, I, and this is another thing. I think it's going to be a continuation. Oh. I don't think it's going to be a reboot or a revival. I think it's going to be a continuation. I could be wrong on that, but that's how I remember it. So we'll see there. As far as BSG, it's interesting to note that the showrunner for that, Ronald D. Moore, came out of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Star Trek Voyager. He tried to take that into a darker, gritty, and DS9 uh, tried to take that into a darker, grittier place. And the powers that be said, at Paramount said no. So mm-hmm. he's like, fine, I'll go do my own thing. And he got uh, critical success. Now, he hasn't really gotten that much success since For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus right now is about the close you're going to get. But it hasn't gotten the same sort of wide sweeping notoriety that bsg did within the community it's like okay it's another service that i have to go buy if you have the subscription to apple tv plus for all mankind is a really cool thing it's an alternative history is what it is with space travel in case you don't know what it is and yes it is good but you have to be in the mood for it sort of thing okay it's always interesting to see when a show comes along that that does something different than what you have and then to see sort of the fallout of that bsg being that one where your sci-fi previous to that especially like major series were kind of one way and then seeing things uh you know superhero movies are another one um with kind of marvel style movies versus dc going in a different direction with a lot of theirs whether it works for you or not um and then seeing sort of the crossing of all of that as media always tries to play catch up. Somebody will make one thing that's different. It You, know, you get that lightning in a bottle. I had this discussion about um, Thor Love and Thunder versus Thor Ragnarok and how people were complaining about a lot of stuff in Love and Thunder that Ragnarok did essentially the same thing. And 
I was sort of like, well, yeah, but Ragnarok, when it did it, it was new and it hadn't really, we hadn't seen that yet. And now we're seeing it, but it's just, we're seeing it again. There's one big difference between those two movies and it's those dang screaming goats. <laughs> those, the okay, so the goats in that movie are a love it or hate it. You either love that joke or you absolutely hate that. And every time they're on screen, you just want to gouge your eyes out. I, I get it. Might like it for the first time, maybe the <laughs> second time. But by the third time, everybody's like, okay, th this is way too much. We need to move on from the screaming goats. Oh, that's fair. That is fair. Well, SP, thank you for being on this week. This was this was a fun conversation. We went in a few different directions. Uh, didn't solely talk about the movie, but that's fun. I love that. I just like seeing where things go. Um, but I am glad that you did sit down and watch it, um, and uh, I love getting your perspective on it. And, um, you know, I look, I love this movie. You didn't. It's fine. We can have the, the different opinion on that, and that's the beauty of art, in my opinion, is that two people can watch the same piece of art and take two very different things away from it. Um, and, and just having a discussion about it is great. It's what I, it's why I do what I do. Um, you, you had, you mentioned a show that you do called, uh, was it legends of shield? Sorry. Legends of shield. Okay. It was a podcast started to cover the original agents of shield television show yep. way back when in 2012. And it has morphed into a Marvel Studios covering podcast. Anything in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, really, we cover. And then some stuff that's outside of it, we cover as well. We just did a great one shot on Werewolf by Night. Oh, that was which fun. That was, that was a surprising one. I had no idea it was even being made. It showed up on Disney Plus, and one of my co-hosts was like, can we cover it? I'm like, sure, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we've been going on. We, we just recorded episode 450. We've been going on for over 10 years now. So it's been a real fun podcast. That's yeah, awesome. Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D. And it's a lot of, I mean, Marvel stuff, a lot of content there to mine. There is so much. You know, we thought about ramping down the podcast after Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and after Endgame. And we're like, oh, well, there's more stuff. So we'll we'll go with it for now. There was an uncertainty because the Netflix shows were going away at mm -hmm. the time. Remember, they yep. all got canceled kind of sequentially. And Disney Plus wasn't a thing yet. And we're like, okay, yeah. is this going to work? Is it not going to work? Have all the Disney Plus shows hit? No, but there's been some really good ones for Marvel. So, yeah, we've been enjoying it for now. And then when we're not enjoying it anymore, we'll probably close it down. I had a similar podcast over on the DC side of things. Okay. And it was covering the Arrow show. It's yep. called Starling Tribune. When Arrow ended, we mercifully ended that podcast because <laughs> we're like, no, we can't. We can't cover this stuff anymore. So hopefully James Gunn over on the DC side of things can bring back the storytelling because there are some tidbits of good in there with Shazam and stuff. Oh, sure. But for the most part, I'm more of a Marvel guy right now than I am a DC guy. So, yeah, we cover Marvel stuff over on Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D. That's really cool. And I am with you in that not all of the Marvel shows hit 100% of the time, but I do think that more times than not, it's not boring there's something in there to, to at least discuss and talk about whether it works for you or not is a different story but i do think so that's that's cool that you have uh you know kind of the we're, we're lousy with choice right now in terms of the content you mentioned something before about 
me not liking the 12 monkeys and you enjoying 12 monkeys mm -hmm. i discovered a long time ago i'm not going to quash anybody's fandom i'm not going to quash anybody's right. enjoyment of anything and i learned that with the original suicide squad not the second one that james gunn did but the first suicide squad sure. movie that went out i went ballistic on that that was something that i was like i can't believe this was even allowed to be out there and i learned that some people actually enjoyed it and i was like whoa 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 what are you talking about and then over the course of like months i was like oh i am doing to you what i hate being done to me and that is i am taking away your enjoyment of your entertainment and it that's all it is it's entertainment this isn't life people this is exactly i'm going to watch this for fun this we, we do these podcasts for fun mm -hmm. this is just how do i like this and let's talk about it sort of thing maybe yeah. learn something about life mm -hmm. to mention like how these things are made or something like that so i enjoy talking to people that have differing opinions because they bring to light different things about the art that we're watching and I'm fine with that. Now, am I going to change my opinion on the original Suicide Squad movie? No, I am never gonna watch that again. Am I ever gonna change my opinion on this, 12 Monkeys? I don't know, maybe if I ever get on a mental health, mental illness <laughs> kick again, I, I might honestly, just to go back and see how this was treated versus how something else is treated, sure. but I'm not planning on it. So, you know, this is great. I'm glad I got to experience it, so thank you. Absolutely. And and I'm with you 100%. I don't have to agree with somebody to have a conversation with them about a movie or a television show. There's stuff that I have watched that I just can't get behind. Uh, Suicide Squad actually being one of those. Um, there's like, that's a movie where there were a couple of moments where I'm like, okay, may, but then it just like, what what's going on? Um, that's bad. But, uh, but at the same time, uh, I felt the same. I felt similar about, say, like moments in the prequels for Star Wars. And yet I will talk to people who that's what they grew up on. And those are their Star Wars movies. And I'm not going to take that away from them because at the end of the day, you're right. It's entertainment. It's meant to make us feel good about something. If you enjoy Velocipaster, that's cool. Uh, maybe I didn't love it, although I kind of liked that. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> I like that for, for reasons that make no sense whatsoever. Um, uh, it, it fascinates me when somebody makes a movie for $50 and a case of beer. And that's basically what that movie was. Like, it's literally a cardboard dinosaur at the end of it. It's... I didn't know you watched Slipstream. <laughs> oh, man, I haven't seen that in so long. Now You're making me want to watch it, though. Um, yeah, well, it's first. First of all, uh, I consider it to be a bad movie, so you have been forewarned. However, <laughs> it does have some phenomenal actors in that. Bill Paxton, Mark Hamill, a lot of good actors are in that. Uh, Hagrid himself is in there. Robbie Coltrane oh, nice. is in there too. So yeah, it's got a lot of good actors in it. Uh, unfortunately, Kirk's, who was George Lucas's right hand for mm -hmm. a few films, including Star Wars. He was going through a terrible divorce and lost all his money, so he couldn't Ooh. fund the film. So CGI fell through, and then he couldn't film the action scenes ne necessary to bring to the editing room to make a good movie. So it turned out to be a terrible movie. So, yeah, just have fun when you watch it because <laughs> you're going to have to. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on. This is this has been great. You're welcome back anytime. If you think of another movie you haven't seen, or maybe you got something uh, that you just absolutely love and you wanna you wanna bring it to me, um, I'm all for that too. Uh, so this has been great. I think we discussed a list, so yeah, we'll we'll have to go to number two on the list. All right, sounds great. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, this show I do record live. Um, Sunday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern time at twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. You can hang out in the chat room uh, and and chat with us during a movie. Tom, uh, or Norm, sorry, Norm was in the chat tonight. Uh, it's also, the show does have a Patreon, patreon.com slash W-Y-H-S. You can support the show there if you'd like to for as little as a dollar an episode. And um, next week, Norm in the chat actually is coming on. We're going to talk about Gladiator. He's never seen it before. And I can't wait because there's another movie that there's... Like 12 Monkeys, there's a lot in Gladiator to kind of chew on and talk about, and I'm curious to see what he thinks of that movie after going for however long and never seeing it, because sometimes there's movies where you're just like, how did you not even accidentally see that? Last week, I had Brian Ibbett on, and he had never seen the original 1978 Halloween, and I was like, how how did you not like just find that on cable one one afternoon somewhere, like by accident and see that and he goes I just never did so it's amazing it's amazing how that can happen sometimes that's why I started this show I just love having these conversations so SP thank you so much for being here this has been great and thank uh, you very much for having me absolutely and until next week uh, as I like to say every week get out and enjoy your movies or stay in and enjoy your movies that's fine too but let's be excellent to each other Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>